Welcome this morning. Uh, my name is Brett Johnson. I'm one of the pastor elders here. We have several of us. What is it? Six? Six? That's that right? Yeah, yeah. Six with one in the process. So there's, there's, there's five other dudes who, who hold the same authority that I hold here. So Jesus is our head. Uh, we don't have a head pastor. So glad you're with us this morning. So this morning we are picking up in Isaiah. And, and just to catch us up to where we are, we're going to be in Isaiah 49 this morning. But what, what's happened, the first part of the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, are telling the story of kind of warning and hope, you know, where Isaiah is preaching to them, saying, hey, you want to trust in the Lord, don't trust in yourselves, remember who God is, uh, don't forget who you are. So that's the first 39 chapters. And so we see him preaching to them, talking about the hope that's coming, and, and, and saying, look, don't trust in anything other than the Lord your God. Trust in the Lord. So that's the message of the first half of the book. But then in chapter 40... Something shifts, right? Where you pick up the, the text of Isaiah 40 and you're going like, wait, what happened between 39 and 40? And the answer to that is captivity. Babylonian captivity to be specific, which really comes into the picture in, uh, in you know, Isaiah is written about 740 BC uh, or 700 BC. And the Babylonian captivity happens in like 550, right? Like mid 500s. And so there's a 150 year gap. So Isaiah is writing to this future context of these people who are going to be in captivity, which is what we're reading right now. Okay. So we're having the story of, of what happened to Israel when they went into Babylon. Last week we saw that they're delivered from Babylon, from their bondage, right? From their captivity, they're delivered by this foreign ruler named Cyrus. Um, and so they're delivered. But here's the problem, right? We, we, we read about the deliverance last week and at the very end of the sermon, right? The very end of chapter 30, uh, 48, go to Isaiah 48, the end of uh, 48. You know, we're reading this great story about their rescue, about God's, you know, delivering them out and the who and the how and all that happens. But then we get to the end of it and the last verse, right before, it's, which is this, it, the whole section was a section on encouragement, says this, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Again, that's something all of you, I'm sure, have a little cross stitch of, you know, on your fridges. You know, it's you know, tattoos of that. There's no peace for the wicked, right? Kid, your, your kids are memorizing that, right? No, right? It's like, wait, what? what? Like, why are we ending the section on encouragement with, there is no peace for the wicked, and here's the quote that we need to wrestle with, which I've been kind of dropping in the sermons the last probably three or four weeks. Israel's greatest problem is not their circumstance. It's not what is outside of them that is their greatest problem. Their greatest problem is what is inside of them, their sin, right? They have this sin problem that whether they're in Babylonian captivity or not, there's something going on in the heart of humanity and the heart specifically of God's people that needs to be dealt with. So all of that to prep, get us to our question for this morning. I like to ask a question. That's kind of how I like to roll, get our brains moving. Here's the question I'd like to ask us this morning. What is the difference between guilt and shame? What is the difference between guilt and shame? Okay, kind of a interesting discussion here. Okay, because here's the deal. You have Israel that's been delivered, right? They've been, their, their chains, their literal physical chains have been broken, right? We love that, you know, break every chain, break it. We love, right? we love that idea, right? Broke all the chains. But so their, their chain has, chains have been broken. So now they're marching back to Israel, but there's, there's still a lot undealt with in the heart of Israel. And specifically, one of those things is shame. 
So here's a little, there's a crew has a little tract on this, actually, that I thought was very helpful. So shame, let's give you a little definition. There's a, a book called The Care of Souls, which I actually am not recommending to you, but I'm just saying this is where I got this quote from. It's a, it's a quirky uh, Lutheran book, but it has some good stuff in there. And he says this, guilt is sin committed. Shame is sin suffered. Huh. That doesn't define all of it, but it starts to get us there, right? Guilt is sin committed. I'm spending a little bit of extra time in, in intro this morning because I want to set, a, set us right because, because we're, we're not a guilt or we're not an honor and shame culture. We're more of a guilt culture, meaning like you think about legal penalties more than you think about honor, which has its own problems, right? Like, and I don't feel like I've tarnished my honor because I got a speeding ticket earlier. Like I could say, yeah, I, I sped to church and you guys wouldn't be like, oh, I'm so offended. You'd go, okay, we'll pay the, pay the ticket. No big deal, right? So, so guilt and shame. We are a guilt culture. We think about legal violation more than we think about honor and shame, okay? So here is, when we talk about shame, here's what this little crew track, this is written for people in, in honor and shame cultures. This is what they describe as shame. We feel isolated, rejected, polluted, excluded, and abandoned. Okay? And I think now we start to get to it a little bit. How many times have you wronged someone? Hopefully you've had this experience where you've wronged someone and you went to them to apologize. Right? So... I'll just say this um, while I'm, you know, calling things out. We, we're terrible at this. We love to avoid things. But if you wrong someone, you sin against them, you slander against them, or you, or you say something mean, when you go to apologize, you say something like this, I sinned against you, I've wronged you, I'm grieved, I'm sorry. But a good apology, if you're taking notes, if you need to learn how to apologize, this is a good little, little primer. A good apology doesn't stop there. It goes, will you forgive me? Right? And so then, the, you know, and, and if we're being good boys and girls, we say, well, of course, I'll forgive you, you know, because we know we're supposed to, right? So that, listen, that's a good exchange. That's good. Here's the problem. Now, maybe you don't do this as much as I do. <laughs> I have a lot of transgression um, that I'm always having to confess to people and deal with because I think it's good to keep short accounts and to deal with it. So you, here's the problem. You do that. When you walk away from that conversation, is everything settled. In one sense, yeah, forgiveness has been offered. But in another sense, we have a problem, and that problem we want to call shame. Because here's the deal, when I have conflict with someone, now I've outed myself to, let's use Brian, because I sin against Brian all the time. So, I, you know, I, I, Brian Behal. So I, I, will, I will say something wrong to Brian. He's an elder here, so we, you know, we get into it sometimes. And I'll say to Brian, hey, Brian, man, I, I'm sorry, dude. Like, I, I shouldn't talk to you that way. So the, the problem is, is that Brian will forgive me, but now I, next time I see Brian, I may have this kind of swirl of different things about how I feel about Brian and I, and I, am, and I treat Brian differently. I'm like, oh, hey, man, good to see you. I'm saying the right things, but something's still there. That, that really is kind of what shame gets at. And Jesus did not come, God did not deliver Israel just to deal with their guilt. And so we're going to look at that this morning. So this is where he says, there is no peace for the wicked, has multiple layers to it. And one of those we have to look at is this idea of guilt and shame. So now that the field has been set, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into Isaiah 49. Heavenly Father, we, um, 
We need help with this more than we ever could realize. Lord, we, we think that we have good information and that that's enough. We need your spirit. We need your truth. We need your power to do something to us so that we can be a people who not only are free of our guilt, but we're free of our shame. And we don't have the power to do that. Lord, would your word do um, unfathomable work this morning? Would, would movements and repentances and changes and softnesses all happen in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Isaiah 49, verse 1, and so let me read it for us. We're going to do two things. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm laying out shame on the table. Who will cover our shame and how will the shame be covered are our two big points this morning. Who will cover the shame? Because again, picture you got Israel who's coming back to the promised land. They're on their way marching back to Israel, but they have been made fools of. The nations know. They got problems. It's unequivocal, inescapable. They know it. Israel knows it. The nations know it. And they have some shame that they have to deal with. So we find ourselves and guilt. So both of those are always at play. Isaiah 49, starting in verse 1. Let me read verses 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people, peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the redeemed of Israel and his holy one to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen me. Pause right there. So the question is, who will deal with the shame and the guilt of Israel? Who is it that's going to come? So here's, this is the thing. This is, this is the, 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 the mind-blowing part of, 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 of Isaiah, really, is that Israel realizes there's a problem. Israel's being told their biggest problem is not what lies outside of them, but what lies within them. And they are wondering, how is this going to get dealt with? Who is this person? We had Cyrus was great. He delivered them out of bondage, but Cyrus wasn't the one who's going to deal with this internal problem. He dealt with their external circumstances. So how are they going to deal with this internal circumstance, this internal issue? Look at 49. And he basically, he basically cries out to the nations. He goes, hey, nations, listen up. Oh, coastlands, listen, give ear. The Lord called me. This is talking about the servant. 
this new person who's going to come and deal with this shame and deal with this guilt and, and be this redeemer for Israel, he's starting to identify. The Lord called me from the womb. Interesting language here. From the body of my mother, he named me by name. He has a very specific person in mind. And then the next verse, we get a little, we get a little preview into who that is. Verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Now, if you've ever read Revelation, there's this picture, this picture of this strange fellow who comes, and he has a sword coming out of his mouth. So where does John get that idea from? He gets it right here. This is, this is the, he, he, you know, God shows John this picture that really began right here. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. This is a picture of Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth, which is a very strange picture, which if you read the rest of this section, 49 through 52, there's more language about the things that are going to come out of the mouth of this servant and what those things are going to do. But the first thing we see is that it's like a sharp sword. And then he makes his very specific point. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away, which kind of takes all of those little metaphors about being named by name, a sword out of his mouth, being prepared ahead of time. The picture is, you know, if you guys are, uh, you know, TV buffs and you watch the arrow, anyone? No? Yeah. Thank you. There's like one of you. Um, anyway, this guy has a, you know, has a quiver, right? So the, the picture is that he fashions this perfect arrow and he puts it away and he finds a specific spot in the quiver that he's, he's hiding it away for when the moment comes that when, when Isaiah 48 happens, when Israel's being delivered out of Babylon and they're, they're going to back into the land, God is, he's kind of readying the arrow. Go, all right, I know, I know exactly how and when and where this arrow is going to be used. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. So who will cover the shame of Israel? Well, we're seeing that it's this, this servant, whoever this servant of the Lord is, this one that's being named by name. Look at verse three, you are my servant, Israel. We're seeing that whoever this servant is, they're a part of Israel. They're coming from Israel. And so we see that somehow Israel is the place, the people where this servant comes from. So when we're asking the question, who is the servant? Who is covering this shame? We're seeing that it's the servant that is, has in some way relation to Israel. Now, I want to note something. Look at verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. And look at this word. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. Now here's this idea of honor and shame. So whoever the servant is, they're honored in the eyes of God. Right? They're honored in the eyes of the Lord. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 7. Go down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Wait a second. How is he honored and despised? Those are, those, are, those are two different things. They're contradictions, actually. right? How is it that this servant, the one who is coming to deal with the shame of Israel, is somebody who is both honored and despised? How does that work? This is the thing that confounded Israel. Because they're more of an honor-shame culture than we are. So they don't understand, wait, okay, so, so we love that he's honored in verse 5, but then we get down to verse 7 and we start to get uncomfortable, and then we're going to get progressively more uncomfortable, and next week we're going to get really uncomfortable. Next week's Isaiah 53, where it's like, wait a minute, 
why, why, why is there so much dishonor when we're talking about gaining back our honor? Just, you know, honor and shame go together. Shame is the negative, honor is the positive. And here we have that tension that is being teased out. So something I want you to be really clear on, who is this servant? Excuse me, who is the one who delivers us from the shame? It's the servant. And what do we see about this servant? First is that he's honored by God. The servant is honored by God. We see that in verse 5, but despised by men. So here's the first thing that we need to grab out of this. It's really important where you get your honor from. It's really important where you get your honor from. Because if you get your honor in the wrong place, you're going to invert, you're actually going to do the literal exact opposite of what God wants you to do. Honor in the right place produces good things, produces righteousness. Honor in the wrong place actually produces wickedness and no peace. This is critical for us because this servant is honored by God and despised by men. And I'll even say it this strongly, it's one or the other. It can't be both. We want to try and live in the world of both, and you can't do both. Their agendas are in contradiction to one another. So you're either going to honor one and disrespect the other, or disrespect one and honor the other. And you got to make sure you're figuring out who is it I'm actually trying to honor here. Who am I honoring? Am I honoring God? Am I honoring men? So who is it that will deliver us from this shame? The answer is this prepared servant, Israel. The one who has a sword coming out of his mouth. And because of the New Testament, we, we know in hindsight, oh, oh this, is, this is Jesus. This suffering servant who doesn't just come to pay for sin. He doesn't just come to pay for sin. Does he pay for sin? Amen. He pays for sin. You better believe he pays for sin. Do you need sin paid for? You desperately need sin paid for, but it's not only payment of sin. And that's where we get in trouble as we think of ourselves as only those who've, been ha who've had their sin paid for. That is just the beginning, church. We have had our sin paid for, but there's so much more. And that's what he's starting to get at here, huh? He's honored in the eyes of God, deeply despised by men and rulers. Interesting. So who is the one? The servant. Jesus, the, the sword coming out of his mouth, this prepared, suffering servant that we will see more clearly next week. Now, so, so Israel hears that. This is meant to be an encouragement to them. Awesome. Someone's going to come and deal with our shame. Look at verse 14 of chapter 49. Israel ain't buying it. This is Isaiah 49, 14. But Zion said, this is kind of a a summarization of how Jerusalem slash Israel is responding to this message that they're hearing that there's a servant who's going to come and both bear their shame and, and be honored by God. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Is this not often how we respond? This is a voice of shame. Because now, nope, it's, it's been too bad. We've, we've dealt with too much. We've, we've been in captivity. We've, the things we've done. No, Lord, you, you turned your back on us. This can't be. They, they, don't, they don't want to hear. They're, they're pushing back against the, the commitment and the, the promise of God where God says, We're, I'm going to send a, a servant who's going to deliver you. And they're saying, like, I'm not buying it. 
But then look at how God responds, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. And he goes on and on. I wish I could read all of it, but he is saying, listen to me. I have not, cannot forget what I've promised, what I've committed, what I will do. There is no turning back for Yahweh. He will not relent from doing what he promised he would do. He said, you are mine, Israel. You are mine, all those who believe upon Jesus. And there is nothing anyone will ever do to make me forget, turn my back, turn away. You are mine. You are my children. And I'm not turning away. Can one forget her nursing child? And the answer there, for if you've not been a nursing mother, which I don't find myself in that category, but I have a woman that I'm married to who is in that category and uh, stand in her way. You get between her and one of her kids. God help you. Fierce. Five, two, and fierce. Part of why I love her. So, who will cover the shame? This servant will cover the shame. Honored by God, despised by men. Uh, Zion pushes back and says, no, we're not, we're not, no. After all we've done, after all we've perpetrated, God says, you're mine. You're still mine. He is sending one to deal with this shame. So now, so, so we have good news now. Okay, the shame is going to be dealt with by this one who will, be, who will be honored by God, but dishonored by men. We want to argue with God and say, no, no. And God's saying, no, no, you, 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 there's nothing you're going to say that's going to change how this is going to turn out because God will redeem those he has sought out to redeem, period. End of story. God is going to do what he promised he would do. How is he going to do that? How will the shame be covered? Well, the story continues. Flip over to... Um, Isaiah 50, starting in verse 4. So, who will do the redemption? The servant of the Lord will do it. He will not forget what he's promised. Okay, so he's doing that. How will he do it? Well, look at, look at verses 4 through 6 in chapter 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word. This is getting into this whole sword in the mouth language here. He will sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward, and this is where it gets uncomfortable, and I gave my back to those who strike, and my, my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Stop right there. We're jiving with that first part. Like, okay, you know, he's going to teach people and it's going to be effective and that's great. And morning by morning, he awakens me. That sounds like a devotional. That sounds good. That's good. The Lord has opened my ear. Finally, I was deaf. This is good. Okay. And then we get to verse six. And we go, wait a minute. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. 
This is a, this is, this is a little, this is a, in broad terms what we're going to drill into in Isaiah 53. What's happening in verse 6? I gave my back to those who strikes and my cheeks to those who pull out the, the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. What is going on, man? Here's the thing, church. You know, Jesus in his blood has uh, more than enough payment for, for any payment that needs to be made for your and I's sin, right? And so what, what, what could have happened at Calvary is Jesus could have made an appointment and could have walked into a lab and just said, hey, I'm here to, I'm here to make that payment. Um, you got some, you know, where are the, where are the sterile syringes? Oh, oh, and they're like, oh, sir, come over here. Um, we have this nice little chair for you. Sit here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you comfortable? Um, is it too warm in here? Okay, you need some orange juice? You know, your, is your blood sugar low? Here, sit down. Let's get a little needle here. Is it, oh, let's get the sterilized needle. Let's, oh, let's put those in here. And, and he could have filled up the vials. Plenty to pay for our sins. He could have spilled out that blood and, and just paid it for us. But that's not the picture we get at the cross. Something, something else is going on at the cross. It's not, just, it's not just blood spilled. It's not just as if he went there just to, to, to spill out blood. And the way that we talk about the cross sometimes is he poured out his blood for our sins, which is categorically true, but not categorically enough. The part of the crucifixion that really, really gets to our sensibilities is those who gathered around for the show as they stripped him naked. You know, we get the, we get the dressed up crucifixes with the loincloth. He is naked. They are laughing at his nakedness. They are spitting on his body. They are making a mocking crown that they're cramming on his head. That's more than bloodshed, church. What is happening at the crucifixion? What are we beholding? This is not just the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. Not just that. We have a man who becomes filthy to the world. Listen, the Jesus that I worship I can conceptualize the blood. But the spitting and the mocking where they're making fun of our Jesus that we love. They're mocking him. Oh, you're the king of the Jews? You'll save yourself. What is happening? Shame is happening. Where when you come to the cross, and you, and you acknowledge, I need forgiveness of sin. It's not just that acknowledgement, but we're also saying like, but Jesus, do you know? Do you know the things that I have thought and felt toward other people? Do you, do you really know? Right, because who doesn't have that haunting fear that one day the person you're connected to, one day your friend, one day your lover, one day your spouse, one day somebody's going to come and go, oh, I, I found out. Now I, now I know what you're like. I've seen it now. I saw your internet report. I heard the thing that you said. We have this nagging suspicion that maybe one day they'll find out. That's shame. This feeling of like, ah, but really Jesus. And you know what Jesus says? He says, yes, really. I saw 
all of it ahead of time. I saw all the shame of it. And there is nothing that you will suffer in any of what you think is filthiness that even comes close to what he endures in the crucifixion. To be publicly mocked by multiple nations. Not just little groups of people. You've got the Jews. You've got Rome. You've got these powers that are just standing there, not to mention the powers and the principalities who are laughing. And Jesus says, I take all of this on for you. And what does he say from the cross? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You hear the grace in that? He knows our darkness. And he says, that doesn't prohibit you from union to the living God after what he's about to do. So hear me. Some of you are here and you think, if you really knew, Brett, if Jesus really knew, he wouldn't. And I'm saying, he does. He knows it more than you do. He sees its badness more than you do. And he says, this is why blood and humiliation, the crucifixion and the, and the shame that it is, is this glorious thing. Because you know who it's not shameful to? The Father. Hebrews 12, 2, right? Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross what? Scorning or despising its shame. He put shame to shame. He made what was awful and, and, and unhonorable, he made it honorable. He was honoring the Father in fullness and perfection as he's being dishonored by men. And again, not to just pay for your sin, but for you on those moments when you transgress and you think, I, that's it, I, I'm, I, I must have just undone it. He goes, can, can a mother turn from her nursing child? You belong to me. You are mine. No matter how dirty you think you are or how dirty you feel, this is what my suffering servant, this is why he had his beard pulled from his face. There's only two reasons to do that. It's painful, sure, but it's mostly humiliating. You take someone's, their face, and you pull from this thing that honors and shows wisdom, and you pull from it only to shame them. And this is what Jesus signs up for. To be really honest, like we talk about the fear of public speaking, right, is the number one fear, not death but the fear of public speaking. It, it betrays in us, we'd rather die than be embarrassed. Right? So death we can handle. But social shame is just, it's too, it's too much for us. 80% of people, right? Is that in the statistic? 80% of people would rather die than public speak? Huh. Jesus is saying, uh, you, you pick your brand of death and I'll take all of them to come get you because I love you and I'm going to make everything right. 
not just so that you can go and, and, and speed no more, but so that when you sin, you can know that your relationship with, with your Father in heaven is unruptured and that you are close to him regardless of how you feel, regardless of how, how shamefully you may feel. I think about Paul Tripp and the devotional that we've been doing for Lent that talks about uh, you, you know, the, 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 the most lies that we, we hear are from ourselves. We lie to ourselves more than anyone else, Paul Tripp says. And I think it's mostly in this arena. Oh, just, just, you might as well just keep on sinning. What you've done is so shameful. And what we need to hear is, no matter what you've done, Jesus has borne that shame. And we no longer are a people of shame. We're a people of honor because of this new thing that God is doing in this chosen Messiah. So how will the shame be covered? Verses 50, uh, chapter 50, verses 4 through 6, it's disgrace taken and disgrace overcome. Look at 7 through 11. But God, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Wait, 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 wait. We just read that he had his beard pulled out in verse 6, and he's been humiliated, and now we read in verse 7 again, come on, make up your mind, bipolar scriptures. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, right? Because where is he getting his honor from? From his Father in heaven, who defines what real honor is and where real life is and what is actually true comes from his lips. This mouth that bears a sword that can do all works of truth. God's word is this thing that teaches and shows us what real honor is about. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. So here, there's a, there's a whole discussion to be had, which I'm only going to mention this, and it's going to wreck some of your weeks, and that's fine, about true shame, right? Which like, yeah, you did something shameful, and that just needs to be covered by the blood of the cross. And then this false shame that we just, we manufacture. These self-narratives that we create about our own dirtiness and our unworthiness. And Jesus is saying like, what do I have to say about all of this? Because he says, look at that, look at verse 7. For those of you who are wrestling with shame, look at verse 7. Underline it, highlight it, mark it, memorize it, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Look at verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me, and who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. Which gets us to our last thing. So the, the, the servant scorning the shame, right? This is, how, this is how the shame will be covered, that the, the, the servant will take on disgrace in order to honor the Father, like we talked about the first part. But then we have this, these garments that we're about to see. Shame covered. What does shame covered look like? The first thing that we see, go to uh, 51. Isaiah 51. I've got to keep moving here. 4 through 8. So th these are, this is how, we, how the shame, what, what God offers us as part of the covering for shame. So we have false coverings and we have true coverings. 
False coverings are in verse 4 through 6. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Let me pause right there for one second. I didn't even get to make this point last service, but you guys get the extra stuff. As he's doing all this, as he's vindicating his people, as he's redeeming them, he's holding them up and saying, you see these shameful people who've been redeemed by me that you guys think are shameful? This is what a redeemed people looks like. Sick, needy, crying out for rescue. These are the redeemed. You all can have this. Babylon can have this. Assyria can have this. Anyone who cries out on the name of God, there's not a people too dirty to be redeemed and vindicated by this chosen one, Jesus, who does the work of not only washing our sin, but also takes our shame. And that's offered to all peoples. This is the second time that he's a light to the peoples. It's also in 49. So as the nations watch this weak and pathetic Israel who is beloved of God, redeemed of God, and, and honored by God, the nations see that, and, if they, and, and these are like the Rahabs that are out there that go, oh man, I, I, can I get on that? Yeah, amen. And we'll keep rolling. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands hope for me. And my arm... For my arm they wait, lift up your eyes to the heaven and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment. There it is again. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. So there's, there's, there's two kinds of garments. There's the kind that wear out and the kind that don't. So the kind that wear out are in verse 6. There's kind of two things there. He talks about the earth. Look at the end of that verse there. The earth will wear out like a garment. Are you finding your hope in what Instagram, Twitter, who's popular now? Jay-Z, I don't know. Yeah, welcome to, welcome to my hood. Yeah, um, right? Who are, you, who, who are you listening to? And these, these systems that do not, do not matter and aren't going to last, the earth will wear out. The first garment is the earth. It's systems, the world systems. That's the first false garment. The second false garment is the, is the voice of people. So the first one is systemic. You like systemic language? There you go. Systemic stuff, right? These, these, these systems we find ourselves. The second is they who dwell in it will die in like manner. This is the voices of those who are, who are not walking with God. The opinions of men. The honor of men. How much of your life is spent trying to people please and get the right narrative and make sure everybody in every circle and every category and every box is make sure they, they think that you're tolerant, accepting this, that, whatever it is. Instead of saying, what does God have to say? What does it look like to honor God? And hear me, church, and I, I, I'm, I'm drinking of these waters pretty deeply because this is coming for us in this age we live in. Listen, we're already in a moment. You cannot honor God and honor man. It's going to be one or the other because the narratives are becoming more and more and more and more and more anti-gospel. And in some sense, the church will flourish because they're going to go, wait, you're not saying this? Everybody says this. No. God created us male and female in his own image. Wow, so controversial. No, not really. It's First chapter in Genesis. That's becoming a controversial statement. Man. So, 
Are we going to live for this honor that's fading or honor that does not fade? So those are the false garments. The, the true garments, starting in verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. And there it is right there. Fear not the reproach of men, nor be dismayed at their revilings. And here's that language. The, their garments are going to wear out, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all, to all generations. So garment one is God's righteousness. I mean, this, is, this is Jesus' language right here. This is Romans 13, where he says, put on Christ. Put him on that when we believe upon Jesus, we are putting on Jesus. We are, we are wearing our righteousness in, in Christ. That when we walk this world, when Jesus looks, or excuse me, when the Father looks down, he sees a different kind of garment in, enveloping his people. And it's the righteousness of Christ. It is, it is literally in Romans, it's Romans 13. He says, Romans 13, 14, it is the righteous, it is, it is put on Christ himself that we are actually putting Christ on, that people see him, they see his character, his righteousness. That's garment one. And it doesn't fade, contrasted with the jeans you buy at Target. At least that's where I get my jeans. And some ripped last week, so I had to buy new ones, right? That's why he used that illustration. You have clothes that you're having to replenish all the time because they're not sufficient to cover your shame. But the righteousness of Christ is sufficient. Garment one is this forever righteousness. Garment two, look at verse nine. Awake, awake, and put on strength. Oh, arm of the Lord. Flip to chapter 52. That same language repeated. 52.1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. And listen to this language. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake from yourself the dust and arise and be seated. O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. You hear that? The picture is not of, of some soldier who comes in, kicks in the door of the jail and says, all right, you're good to go, see ya. This is a picture of a, of a king who comes down and crawls into our cage through the mud and through the muck and he gently and carefully untakes our bondage and he pulls it off and then he, he wraps us in his robes and he takes us tenderly by his arms. This, this beaten down, shame-filled one who thinks clearly, obviously, there's nothing desired here. And Jesus says, oh, I've been longing and hunting and working and searching and I found you. And now you're coming to me. And never, ever again will you be away from my side. Nothing will separate you from my love. And so he takes us in his arms and he takes us. And you know what he does? He doesn't just set us free. The gospel is not that you've been set free. It's that you've been bound to him. And this life and the, and the shame that he covers, he is there perpetually to cover the shame. And then when the mockings come, he's there and he's saying, uh, no, uh, our father has something other that he thinks about what's going on right now. You're with me. Arise, O Zion, 
and put on your beautiful garments. These are the robes of the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel, church. Not that you've just had your sin paid for. You've had any sort of any feeling or thought or idea that makes you unclean in your own mind to not be unified to your Father. All of that, not just the legal payment, all of that has been rebuilt in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And your experience of Him until you go to be with Him will be you unpacking that for however long you've got in this body until He comes and redoes all that needs to be redone. And hear me, church, that is good news. It's relationship with the living God. Man. And look at verse 10. The Lord has barred His holy arm before the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. He is offering this to all who would look upon. And what good news this is. What good news this is for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You you genuinely have been too kind to us. We, we, we did not deserve it. We often fight against it. We often shake our fist at you in frustration that, that, that we didn't get something that we wanted to have, and yet you and your kindness are still breaking our chains and not only breaking our chains, not only paying our penalty. You do all of this not for freedom's sake. You do all of this because you delight in relationship with us. It's, 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 it's unfathomably beautiful. Lord, I pray right now for the young men and women, the old men and women, the people in this room who, who struggle to believe that you would be that glorious. Lord, could you give their hearts and minds the strength to comprehend what is the immeasurable glory and beauty of the gospel? Would they leave today uncomfortable with the amount of shame that you remove, the amount of glory that you give, the amount of life that you offer? Would you expand the scope of the gospel in our hearts and minds? Lord, you... You are so much more wonderful than we even imagined. Thank you that you came for us. Yeah, help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.